You're listening to the CapEx Big Question podcast, where we're joined by other investors, thought leaders, and entrepreneurs discussing global game-changing trends and burning topics that keep investors up at night, one question at a time. So, I've got today with me Jared Dillion. Jared's a former employee at Lehman Brothers, I believe, Jared, um, which you joined just after you got your MBA at the University of San Francisco. Um, and you worked there as an arbitrage trader um, before moving on to the ETF desk. Is that correct? Yep. And um, the other thing that you've done since leaving Lehman Brothers, um, you've authored a book called The Street Freak, Money and Madness at Lehman Brothers. And you've moved on to publishing something called The Daily Dirt Nap, which I've been a avid reader of for ooh, probably about eight months now um, since I first came across your work. And um, very, very thoughtful analysis. What I quite enjoy about the way that you view things is behavioral economics. You kind of bring that into the trading side of things. And that's something that I've um, I've got a strong bent towards myself. So I find that really interesting. Um, and... The thing that I, I kind of that jumped out at me at the start, Jared, was you know the move from arb trading, um, which can be a somewhat niche, into hitting the ETF desk. When I kind of think about what the, the kind of product line that you've got to trade this, the to a certain extent you've got the flexibility that a typical um, hedge fund manager has in that you can go across currencies, you can go across commodities, equities, fixed income. Um, pretty much the world's your oyster because of the ETFs that have been created over the years. Um, and I'm curious as to how that, how that education has shaped your thinking, both from the behavioral economic side of things and just that ability to go into pretty much any market via ETFs. Yeah, I mean, the switch from, our, from you know, I was doing index arbitrage. So the switch to ETFs wasn't all that difficult because... Um, I mean, when you're making markets for customers and ETFs, basically what you're doing, they're, they're, each trade is actually an arbitrage trade. So if somebody sold me 100,000 shares of XLE, I'm buying the shares of XLE and then I'm selling the basket against it. And I'm attempting to do a small arbitrage with that. So it's very similar. Um, but, you know, really on, on the ETF desk, that was my introduction to trading macro. And my biggest customers on the ETF desk were pretty much the big macro hedge funds. Um, you know, the ones that would uh, trade, um, like you said, across asset classes, you know, you know, spies, but plus fixed income ETFs and currencies and everything else. So, um, you know, I started on the ETF desk in 2004 and um, probably by 2006, I had a pretty good proprietary trading effort going. And by 2008, that's pretty much all I was doing. Uh, I had hired um, another guy. There were two guys that were basically running the customer business and I was doing prop and it was quite successful. And it was actually, it was really, um, it was, it was a really, I mean, a, you know, a tragedy on a personal level uh, that, you know, Lehman went bankrupt, you know, 2008 was an incredible year for us. And, you know, I'd, I'd probably still be there otherwise, you know, there's just, uh, it was, it was working out really well. So. Did you find, because I mean, with, with ARP trading, you've got, um, you know, you basically got your two markets that you're trying to capture the difference. And 
Did you guys utilize technical analysis much or fundamental? Was there no need to do that? No, in fact, it was basically, you know, index arbitrage is, um, at the end of the day, it's a, it's a funding and interest rate trade. It's actually very boring mm-hmm. uh, because basically like we had a big balance sheet full of stocks, uh, S&P 500 index, Russell 2000, mid cap, stuff like that. And they were hedged with short futures. And we basically, we were carrying around this seven or $8 billion position that was Delta hedged with the futures. Um, and back in, you know, 2002, 2003, the futures were trading so rich to fair value that you could, you know, I mean, just by holding that position, you were making leverage profits in the, you know, the millions every year. And, um, you know, the, that funding environment has changed over time. The futures trade much cheaper to fair value now. And um, it's made index arbitrage a lot more difficult. And plus, the actual aspect of trading it um, has gotten completely electronic. You know, when I was doing it, it was all manual. It's all robots now. Yeah. 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 Actually, that's another point. It wasn't something that I was going to discuss today. But while we're on the topic, what's your view of traders in general with respect to you know artificial intelligence and that world that's moving more rapidly into um it's not necessarily artificial intelligence but kind of like augmented intelligence if you will my personal view is traders like myself and yourself probably got a limited lifespan well yes and no i mean you know technology can really can only go so far. If you ever read Nate Silver's book, The Signal and the Noise, right? Um, it, he talks a lot about how computers are used to forecast the weather, okay? Mm-hmm. And you're really good at forecasting out one day, two days, three days. But after three days, it gets mathematically impossible because there are so many variables. It's basically like, it's like factorial, one factorial, two factorial, three factorial. The numbers just get really big. Um with all the different variables affecting weather. And it's the same thing as computers. Computers are really good at forecasting things in the very short term, seconds, minutes, maybe hours, maybe a couple of days. Um, but computers don't do the long term. And um, I don't think they'll ever be able to. Um, it's just too hard. So I think that you know the mistake that people make is what they say, well, I'm going to day trade and I'm going to try to compete against the computers. I mean, that's madness that's com- completely senseless yeah that um, reminds me of the guy standing in front of the tank in Tiananmen Square yeah exactly <laughs> so but the longer term view that you can have the more advantage you have against you know technology right cool um you talk a bunch about behavioral economics where did that come from was that i mean was that just an interest on your own um presumably because i've net you know worked with a number of traders and I'd say there's probably 20% of the guys that I know who actually pay any sort of level of attention to that. Where did that sort of interest come from for yourself? Well, it really came from working on the sell side. Um, what I started to, you know, it's really my experience as a market maker. What I started to notice was my, you know, my clients would sort of act in a herd or a pack and they would all do things at the same time, especially when the markets were under stress. Um, and so if there was, um, you know, just make up some crisis and everybody was selling, everybody was selling. What I learned over time was, is that um, it made 
sense to um, hold on to those trades and not hedge and just take the other side of my customer's trades. Because even you know over a short or medium term, those trades would turn out to be winners. Um, and so really like when I was at Lehman Brothers, I really became fascinated with um, what my clients were doing. And every trade that came in, I sort of analyzed its significance. I mean, with every trade, it's like poker. Like every trade is a piece of information. Um, who the client is, what they do, what they look at, you know, who the hedge fund manager is, why are they selling now? What is their size? You know, are they selling, you know, VWAP, limit, market? Like each and each one of those things is a piece of information. And just by somebody picking up the phone and calling Lehman Brothers, you're getting this huge amount of information. And if you don't use it, it just goes to waste. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I really like I, that's what I did. I, I focused on analyzing every piece of intelligence I got just from our client base. And I, I continue to do that to this day at the Daily Dirt Nap. You know, if people send me an email, like I'm not just like reading the email for fun. I am analyzing it. You know, like, what is the context of this email? Why are you sending this to me? Why are you bullish now? Why are you bearish now? Like, what is your position? And I, you know, it's, that's what I do. Yeah. Yeah. Because there is that thing called reversion to the mean. Yeah. And I'm not even really a mean, I wouldn't even say like I'm a mean reversion trader anymore. I'm, I've actually become more of a trend follower as time has gone by, uh-huh. uh, but the same, it still applies. Okay. So that brings me to something that I was really quite keen to discuss with you. Bonds. So you wrote a really interesting article all about bonds and how you wouldn't touch them with a barge ball. So do you want to just run through your, your thinking, your methodology on that right now? Well, it's, it's a little, it's a little bit of a long story. You know, bonds have been in a 35 year bull market. Um, But the interesting thing about um, the bond market is the low was actually in July of 2012. I meant the, well, not the, the low in yields, the high in bonds, right? Yeah, so yeah, yeah. in July of 2012, 10-year notes got down to 1.4% yield. And we actually haven't made a lower low in four years. Mm-hmm. That, doesn't, that doesn't sound like a bull market to me. In the you know, US. So, in so we're, we're talking. In, in Europe, yeah. in Europe, you've had massively lower lows in yield and in other countries too. But the 10-year note in the US is really the benchmark. Um and, you know, getting back to sort of behavioral trading, if you look at the three things that happened on the day that the 10-year note made its low in yield, three things. Number one, Bill Gross called equities a Ponzi scheme, same day. Number two, the Treasury issued floating rate notes on the, they, they announced the issuance of floating rate loads and the all-time lows in yield, right? Mm-hmm. Bad for taxpayers. And Obama went on the Letterman show and said that, our debt isn't a problem because interest rates are low. All those three things happened on that day when tens were at 1.4%. I mean, that is like, that is bell ringing, you know, in the extreme. Yeah. So if you look at the charts, I mean, basically like it, the chart is actually not really easy to figure out because it's sort of a descending triangle and it looks a little bit like of a consolidation pattern, but it also could be a base. Mm-hmm. We could be um, forming a base in yields. And the way I look at it is that inflation is picking up, not, not, not imaginary, but real inflation is picking up. Wage inflation is picking up. That's the most important part. And you have... Well, wage uh, inflation is going to drive all of the others. That's typically because yes. you get that knock-on effect. Yes. And no matter who becomes president, but especially Trump, the debt is going to get bigger in 2017, no matter who becomes tra- president. And if it's Trump, it's going to be a lot. 
So just the, you know, nobody's even thought about supply of bonds since 1994. 1994, we were talking about Hillary Care. Hillary Clinton was was the first lady and came up with her health care plan. We were going to have nationalized health care and the bond market freaked out. Yeah. That was the last time 22 years ago that the bond market ever cared about supply. And if Trump becomes president, I assure you that the bond market's going to care about supply. Right now, we do about 20 billion in tens a month in auctions. We're going to be doing 80 to 100 billion if he can, if he becomes president. Massive supply. Okay. So, so I agree. I, I agree with everything you're saying. I'm going to throw a couple of rocks at this, Jared. So. Everything that we do is is on relativity, right? Like we make a we make a decision. You you pick your wife. You walk into a bar or your girlfriend. You, it's relative. You know, there's two girls in the bar. You pick the one that you like. So we're always looking at relativity. And if you look at the global capital flows, what we've got is Europe, Japan, in terms of deep deeply liquid bond markets. And so, if I'm sitting in Germany, for example, right now, and there's a real threat to the currency there. Um, and I look at the US bond yields or on a relative basis, they're better than I can get in Europe. Also, if the currency side of things, um, there's a case to be made that I'm probably a little bit safer in the US dollar than I am in Euro. So do I, you know, do I send my money there? And I think that that's that's in like look, that's been taking place with the dollar index up or about thirty percent. It's kind of been taking a breather for about twelve months, um, and it's it looks like it's sort of consolidating, waiting to move a bit higher. But a big part of that is the capital shift coming back into the dollars. Um, so yeah, there'd be supply coming on the market for the bonds um, for treasuries, but does that supply get taken up by a lot of this capital flight coming out of China or out of you know um, Europe and does that prolong the inevitable? Well, in, in 2008, it did. I mean, we had massive supply in 2008. We did a $780 billion stimulus. We were running these giant deficits to offset um, the recession. And there was that massive supply and it did get taken up. People showed up at the auction because the equity markets were tanking. It was mass, massive risk off yep. and people were going to treasuries for safety. Um I guess the difference this time is China and Japan are no longer buying, even though treasury, U.S. treasuries are cheaper on a relative basis than you know Europe and Japan. But we're you know those China and Japan are done. Like that one that that you know that bid that we had from Asia all the time is pretty much gone. Mm-hmm. Um, China's got so, their own problems, I guess. But yeah, what about Europe? Yeah, we're getting a lot of demand for treasuries from Europe just for that reason. Mm-hmm. You know, it has it has taken up some of the supply. And it, a lot of it is just domestic, you know, people in uh, mutual funds. I mean, when Fed funds are at zero and when if in the U.S., if your savings account is yielding zero, zero percent on CDs, there's, you know, I mean, two and a half percent on bonds or, you know, one point seven percent on tens actually looks attractive. OK, you know, so I'm so. going to throw another question at you, Jerry, which is one that I often get on um, on the blog. Why can't they just keep printing? Why can't they do what what uh, the BOJ are doing? The US, keep, yeah, keep keep bond yields um, low. Well, that's what they did in you know. I actually got this question in San Diego, right? Because this is what the this is what the US did in in the forties up until nineteen forty six was we they pegged the yield curve. Bonds, the thirty year was pegged at two percent. 
So basically, the Fed was printing money to buy treasuries anytime yields went above 2%. Um, and they did that for like eight, nine years. I mean, the yield curve was just fixed. It was pegged. Mm-hmm. Um, now, what happened after World War II, after they unpegged the yield curve, interest rates shot up and we had 30% inflation in one year. Nobody talks about that. Um, but that's that, uh, coiled, that's that sort of coiled spring. Yeah. But that, you know, could that happen? I mean, sure. And, and like, there's reason to believe that it would, because if interest rates back up a couple hundred basis points, now you're talking about a solvency problem for the U.S. government. Right. Mm-hmm. And this And that's when we get into this has been the theory since, you know, 2008. Right. Once we once we did QE, that ultimately this was going to lead to direct monetization of the debt. And you're seeing that in Japan. Right. Mitsubishi UFJ like just dropped out. They're no longer a primary dealer. Yep. And if the other primary dealers drop out, Japan is going to be directly monetizing the debt. You know, there's no other way to do it. Yeah. It's it's, you know, last resort stuff, which kind of brings back into um, a concept that I've been discussing for some time, which is that relativity and the the fact that we've got the main capital sources in the world and the main currency blocks being the euro, the yen and the dollar, all of which are bankrupt, have terrible fiscal situation, terrible balance sheets. Um, and the fact that they're all so bad has allowed all of them to be bad, right? Because there's no exit valve. If, if, yeah. if, you know, if the, you get that relativity, you kind of think about previous currencies that have existed and gone away and blown away in the wind, whether it was the pound sterling or a French franc or any of those, there was an exit valve, right? So like the US dollar was the exit valve for, for sterling. One sterling went away. And you look around the world today and you go like, you've got these three basket case scenarios. What is the exit valve? And there isn't really one, which, which has allowed that sort of, it's allowed them to push the envelope far, uh, far more than they could have could have been any other situation. So we find ourselves in the situation today where you've got negative interest rates in Japan, you've got negative interest rates across Europe, and in the U.S., it's a relative. It's you know, the U.S. by not hiking, even just by staying flat, it's a synthetic hike when everybody else is. Uh, yes, it is. I mean, we have we have by far the most hawkish central bank in the world right now yeah which has which is kind of a bit of a policy divergence over the last 18 months right previous to that it was qe 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 and so everybody yep. was just flooding the market so now we've got this relativity where and that's you know one of the reasons that i look at it and i say well i think that the us is gonna um be a it's, it's gonna be a capital magnet for a while um but that also then pushes pushes the metrics on that trade if you're going to be short the bonds it just means that your entry level is cheaper and cheaper. It could be, you know, you can go out pretty far on the on the curve now and pay very very little to take the other side of the trade because it's just an incredibly one sided boat. Yeah, and that I find that kind of interesting. Yeah, and that's um, yeah. So um, interesting times. Anything else that you're looking at that you find? Um... Well, I mean, you know, Brexit. The Brexit vote is coming up pretty soon. Um, and, uh, back in April in the dirt nap, you probably remember that I wrote that, um, um, the pound would probably, uh, rally on a Brexit. And, um, in the last two months, I've changed my mind. The positioning has totally changed. Mm-hmm. Um, people, um, speaking of behavioral economics and positioning, people have, are, are pretty, are pretty much the, the, the remain up until a couple of days ago was the consensus and people were positioned that way. 
And in the last couple of polls we got, it's it's become clear what side everybody is on. Uh, the VIX has gone from 15 to 20 in two days in terms of vol of vol. That's a massive, yeah, massive. Yeah, it's over 20 today. Yeah. Mm. So um, it's it's just pretty obvious how people are set up. And if they vote to exit, which I think they, they will. Um, I mean, I, look, like, I mean, you, you know, you've been reading my stuff for a while. I'm not a gloom and doom, you know, newsletter guy. Like I don't predict disaster, but all I'm saying is, is that people are, people are wrong way on this. They're not positioned for it. And if they do exit, it could be, um, not, I don't think it's going to be an economic crisis, but it could be a market crisis. Um, you know, it could be a big 30 or 40 event could get a lot of volatility, you know, the indices moving around three or 4% a day could get a little, could get a little crazy. So, I mean, ultimately, like I think from a sovereignty issue and also from, you know, economically, I think it's good for the UK to exit, but it's going to cause a lot of short-term volatility in the markets. Yeah, no, I agree with that. It was something that, you know, going back three, four months ago, I looked at it and I thought, you know what? The pound wins either way, whether they stay, it wins, whether they leave, it wins. Yeah. Right. Because you kind of had that setup where you just had all of this negativity around it. And economically, I don't really think that makes all that much difference, um, whether they leave or not. Um, so that whole knock on effect is, is just kind of gets overblown um, with all of the, the rhetoric and the, the media and all the various parties trying to swing voters one way or the other. Um, but as you mentioned, if you look at the markets now, that's changed. It's, it's, it's actually quite amazing what's happened in the last three, four months. Um, and from a uh, from a political standpoint, what I kind of find really fascinating is you've got the setup in, in Britain where the incumbents are trying to go one way and the market populace is, going to go, is looking like they're going the other way. And then what you had in Japan um, back when um, Karuda brought in negative interest rates, she had a similar kind of um, structure whereby their intention was to devalue the yen. They wanted the stock market to go up. The day that they brought out negative interest rates, the Nikkei dropped 900 points. And since then, we've had the yen go from about 122 to like 106 this morning. Yeah. Right? And so it's kind of like this market going, the incumbents, the guys that are there, we're not really buying what you're, tell what you're selling. And you're kind of getting the same sort of, um, structured now with Brexit in a different fashion. It's more political on the um, Brexit side of things. But all of that, to me, starts indicating a bit of a loss of faith in the in the incumbent, in the status quo, which comes all the way back to what we just discussed, which is bonds. Yeah. So it's a, it's a, it's a pretty fascinating kind of time to be looking at these markets because the asymmetry that exists in them is is... I've never seen this kind of stuff in, you know, I've been doing this for 15 years and it's, um, it's anomalous, which, yeah. which is it's um, a good word for it. <laughs> it is. So, um, but, uh, yeah, thanks. I really appreciate your time, Jared. Um, and for anybody listening to this, you can find Jared at what's your website, Jared, www.dailydirtnap.com. Also, um, the new book is coming out next week. The new book is All the Evil of This World, which is a novel. It takes place in 2000. It's about Wall Street. So you can go to jerrydillion.com to read about the book, or the book is on Amazon. Um, and you can pre-order the Kindle version now, and the hard copy is going to be, abel be available next week. Fantastic. Well, um, 
all the evil in this world, and you're talking about Wall Street. So that's how many pages is that? If 70, it's a short book, actually. 17,000? Like <laughs> <laughs> okay, very good. Well, um, once again, appreciate your time, Jared. Until next time, take care. Thanks very much for tuning in. To receive more great subscriber-only information, go to capitalistexploits.at. Thank you.